Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, and today I am talking with the real Japan founder, Rob Dyer. Thanks so much for joining, Rob. Thanks for having me, Joy. I, I, you may have spotted I'm a bit of a fan of your podcast, so it's, it's, a, it's an honor to be invited on to join you. So happy to be here. Oh, it's wonderful. We've had、uh, interchanges on social media for a long time.、Uh, we've never met in person, but I am very passionate about travel in Japan and promoting sustainable travel, and so are you. So it's、Absolutely. so wonderful to connect and talk about some of your great ideas. Thanks so much. Thank you. So let's start、uh, with introducing your website because. There is so much great information there.、Uh, when did you start the business? Tell us a little bit of the backstory. Sure.、Um, well, my wife's Japanese, and、um, we were obviously traveling back and forth to Japan for many years. And friends and family were asking us, you know, some pointers, the usual thing. Oh, if we go to Japan, or what we suggest, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, originally, I just started it as a personal blog. And just started sort of recording some of the stories and things that we were doing.、Um, and just used that as a repository and just said to people, go over there, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a blog sort of thing. There's, there's some answers.、Um, but then it just kind of evolved and organically grew. And、um, I got to a certain age where I was looking to do something a little bit different.、Um, and so I just decided to make it into a full time job. And it went into a proper business, I guess, around about five years ago, something like that. And so, the, the, the kind of the original concept was really just to share my sort of travel stories. But it, as I say, it's evolved. And so, it's really serving kind of two audiences who are really interested in getting off the beaten track and avoiding the Golden Route and all the major places. There's nothing wrong with any of those, but they're, you know, they're already well covered on, on the internet. And also, they're not the kind of places that I tend to travel to, whether it's Japan or anywhere else in the world. I always like to. The beaten track, my wife and I, we do a lot of independent travel. So, this was just the kind of the Japanese version of that.、Um, and so, the site works on two sides really there's, there's kind of information, resources, so sort of you know, the dreaming stage of getting inspiration,、um, then planning your trip, and then sort of actually getting, getting to Japan. And so, I've got a number of、um, services and things like books and so on, travel planning services for individual clients that I, I, I offer. And then there's、um, also, I do services to the business sector. So I work with regional tourism agencies and some private companies. And that's particularly on raising the profile of you know, those lesser known places, the places that might often be overlooked and often traveled through en route to other bigger destinations. That's kind of what I focus on. Yeah, you have all this. Uh, all of these covers of your different guides, which are available on your website as well. But let me just comment on how amazing your Pinterest channel is. <laughs> It's doing Thank- so well. Amazing. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Well, when I started the blog, I didn't really know, I wasn't on social media personally, hardly at all. I was only on Facebook. And so I was just looking around and sort of seeing where people go for inspiration, particularly, you know, that, that thing, you know, inspiration, something visual. And Pinterest, just I didn't really know Pinterest at all, but it just seemed to be the place that people went, particularly for kind of, you know, big life things like, you know, renovations or moving home or planning your wedding or planning a big trip. And for a lot of people, coming to Japan for the first time is, you know, is a big thing. So,、um, I, yeah, I just kind of started. With Pinterest as my first major social channel. So that's really why I got so much traction and have so many, so many followers on there. And I, like all the things I do on all my social, I share an awful lot of other resources from other channels and, and bloggers and so on, because for me, it's all about just best serving my audience. So where I know the information, I'll write about it and share it. And where somebody else covers it better, I'll just link to that. I like your, your style. It's really simple, easy to get the information very quickly, really good graphics.、Um, in the tourism industry, especially for Japan, we don't often see something that's so visually appealing but easy to read right away. <laughs> so, this yeah, is really、absolutely. well done. No, thank you. That's, well, that, that's actually quite a sort of conscious decision. And, and it's particularly because of what you said.、Um, 
the the external uh, focused websites. So if you know, sort of the JNTO sites, the major sites that are interested in drawing in an international audience into travel in Japan, <clears throat> they're not too bad. But certainly, a lot of the regional tourism sites, you know, they're very kind of old. What I would say, old school um, websites. They're very kind of dated. And the navigation and the usability is not very good. So that's something that I was particularly, you know, um, concentrating on when I was designing the site. And I actually did, I in a previous life in the, my corporate world, when I was back in that world, um, I, I was quite interested in IT. And, you know, in the early days of the internet, I built a company website and that sort of thing. And so I was very well steeped in you know navigation and usability and user testing so i always look at sites and uh, when i'm using them you know from that user experience and wanted to make sure that i didn't fall into the same mistakes and so it's i spend a lot of time on the navigation so on the blog posts for example on my blog on my website um on all the major posts, there's a specific resource section that you can jump to. And there's always a, on the larger posts, there's always a navigation a table of contents at the top of the blog posts. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's you can read the content, there'll be links to related things and things that you could look at and book or, or other sites that might cover small content. But then there's a dedicated resource section at the bottom, which will link to official websites, places where you can book some of the experiences that might be mentioned in the post, that kind of thing. So the idea is if you go into a single blog post on the site, it could act as like a mini planning guide to that entire thing. Um, and so the idea with the site as a whole is then you then kind of just pick the sort of things that you're interested in and then, um, you know, kind of kind of save them either as PDFs. And there's loads. I've got lots of downloads that are free on the site as well. Yeah. So you let's talk about the ebook because um, people can buy the ebook. There's so much great free information on your website. Um, but tell us about the ebook a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's called Planning a Trip to Japan. And it's, it is, as it says, oh, you've got a cover shot there. Thank you very much. The, um, but yeah, it's, it's a collection of ideas and inspiration from the website. So it's really um, a handpicked selection of the blog posts that I think are most useful for planning a trip to Japan. And there again, they're at the various phases. So there's the kind of if you don't know nothing, you know, here's some basic stuff about Japan to think about um, that might spark some ideas. Then there's some practical guides. There's, a, there's some sections in there about, for example, using public transport, which obviously a lot of first timers and new travelers to Japan and even many repeat travelers like myself rely on public transport. So. That's that's a that's a really crucial thing for people to you know not be anxious about, and I know a lot of people are, especially with the sort of potential language issues and those sorts of things. Um, and then there's a few kind of specific guides in there, and there's one I've got. I work with a number of guest writers as well, so I'm more than happy and keen to invite guest writers on board, particularly where they can cover areas where they've got expertise that I don't have. So I work with a blogger called Tenny Wada who um, blogs about having children in Japan. So she's a foreigner living in Japan and she shares her experiences of traveling with a baby, which is, you know, there are some real challenges with that. So I saw her website and I asked her if she would write that post because I know that that's the sort of thing that some of my um, audience are interested in. So I get a lot of emails from subscribers, comments on the blog and so on. And I use those to actively then create new content. And so, for example, when it was something like traveling with a baby, which as somebody who doesn't have any children, I had very little experience of. Um, I, I just sort of reached out to Tenny and asked her if she'd write it. And she did a terrific post. And she also came up with her own personal checklist about uh, when you're flying to Japan with a baby. So things to plan for that flying trip to make sure that it's as you know smooth and calm and less disruptive to other passengers as possible. So really practical stuff as well. You also uh, collaborated with another writer, Justin Scroff, about uh, yeah. accessibility travel in Japan. Yeah, and again, this is this is something which, again, and going back to my sort of previous uh, sort of life in the corporate world, I did a lot of work with the visually impaired community for a number of years, and it was about accessibility to books, um, working with the industries and, and professionals in that sector. Uh, to try and make sure that the visually impaired had accessibility to to books and they weren't disadvantaged in any way and so that 
always kind of seeped into my travel experiences. And I was aware of a really good website called Accessible Japan. And um, I wanted to, to do a piece on accessible travel because, you know, it's a real, it can be a real pain for, for, for travelers if they've got accessibility issues. But also, Japan actually leads quite well in accessible travel compared to a lot of Western countries. And it's not well known. And I think there's actually quite a broad perception that uh, accessible travel in Japan is difficult. And, you know, I, I'm not disabled in myself in any way, but looking at, once you do look into this subject, it seems that Japan is actually reasonably ahead of the game on this and, and certainly ahead in some areas in particular. So yes, I, I invited Justin to do um, a, a kind of an introductory piece on, uh, you know, accessible um, issues and the kind of things, the most common things you're going to come up against and also what the solutions are. So he's kind of personal best tips. Um, so yeah, so that was another example of where I was reaching out to somebody else to to provide um, you know the best answers for my audience, as it were. Yeah, it's great to collaborate with other people who have different insights and skill sets that you can draw on. Um, I had a great talk with Josh Grisdale, who is uh, doing a lot online about Accessible Japan, and he had some great yeah. insights. And very similar to what you said, he said there are some really good points um, for people traveling with disabilities, and then there's a lot of hurdles as well. But he's doing a lot of great work working with businesses and the government to try to make uh, awareness a little bit more widely known yeah. about, about what exactly. is the need, right? Yeah, and it was Josh that I first came across because Josh runs the Accessible Japan website. And I actually saw him being interviewed on the BBC Travel Show about five years ago. And it really caught my eye, obviously. So I literally at the time made a note of his name and then sort of, you know, it, it's kind of things, time passes by. But then I found him on social media found his website and then started digging into the subject again and thinking, oh, this is this is great. They've got so much good content over there. Yeah. So Japan, definitely go, go and check out his site. It's terrific. Yeah, wonderful. Another person who has been in the series, which was so nice to see um, that you were featuring on your website as one of the experiences is tea ceremony with Camilla Tea House. And that's yes. one of the experiences uh, you often collaborate with them, do you? Yes, well, I work with, again, part of my aim with the website and particularly the blog is to raise awareness of these small um, uh, independent businesses and operations um, because, you know, they get lost in the noise and all the large corporate companies, it's the same all over, obviously, you know, tend to dominate the, the market. So I, whenever I get the chance to meet these people or discover these things by myself, I then just want to share them. And so the community ceremony was um, they're in Kyoto and they've got two uh, different centres, two different tea houses. There's one in the city centre and then there's one at the north of the city, um, which is mostly what the article is about. And the photos here are from that. Um, it's called Garden. It's the one in the north of Kyoto. And it's just a couple of minutes walk, actually, from the Golden Pavilion. So if you're going up there for that, it's a great thing that you can tie in at the same time. And yeah, it was a really good experience. And I've done sort of variations of the tea ceremony a number of times down the years. And for me, it was the most a magical one. It was it was wonderful because it was um, it was at the same time. It was all the aesthetic and you know, the cultural aspects of it, but it wasn't staid or stiff or boring. And the team that they've got there um, are kind of really engaging and they're passionate and they speak English perfectly. And, you know, they really kind of want to share. And, they're, and I, you know, they've got a terrific uh, Twitter channel. So fo yeah. follow the tea ceremony on on on, on Twitter because they're, they're putting out really great stuff on on Twitter Amazing, so yeah right? I, that I am always <laughs> flabbergasted um, by mm. the amount of background and history yep. and deep culture insights that they're sharing um, they've got a great team and it was so fun to interview mm. her uh, in these beautiful tea ceremony rooms that they they have, um, of course, like the travel industry, um, they've also really been struggling during COVID. Um, but I noticed that you did a virtual experience in collaboration with um, Arigato Tours, was it? Arigato Japan, that's right. Yes, they do food tours. And um, I also do giveaways and contests and so on. And I often partner up with other companies for the prizes for those giveaways. 
Uh, and so I wanted to do, obviously because of COVID, people couldn't travel. So I, I did a blog post about, um, you know, the, mo the best customer rated um, online uh, experiences, tours and so on. And Arigato Japan's was one of those um, uh, experiences that was in that list. And so I reached out to them about working with them on um, offering some prizes for, for a giveaway. And the prize was um, an online tea ceremony experience. So, yeah, I mean, so that's another example of where, you know, again, small businesses rather than the large corporations where we can kind of help each other out. Um, so, yeah, it was really nice. I haven't done a giveaway for a little while, actually. I've been very busy on the backside of the business working on some technology stuff for some upgrades that are coming this year. Um, but I, I need to do it. I've been thinking just this last week, I need to do another giveaway. So so look out for giveaway. So if you go to therealjapan.com slash giveaway, then you can find out about what the next one will be. Awesome. Uh, we have a comment from YouTube. Uh, he's asking, where are you living now? So that's a good question. Half and half, Absolutely. right? UK yeah exactly and yeah well, well, at the moment it's hundred percent England because of covid um and uh, yeah but so my so we live at the moment we're in uh, the UK in England and we're in the southeast of the country in Kent um it's it's great here because it's really good for accessing um getting uh, over to Europe so we can do lots of stuff to Europe again when times are normal uh, so we like to travel a great deal um but then we split our time between here and Japan. And so we have family through my wife um, in the outskirts of Kobe, which is a lovely city, which I really like. So Kobe is like my second home. Um, but yeah, this is the longest time that actually I've been outside of Japan. Um, I was last there on business um, in January 2019. And that's it's been two years. So it's been terrible away so long. It's really I can't wait to return. It's hard, yeah, and uh, but you have lots of um, great advice and tips for all the seasons. So whenever the borders yeah. are going to open, you're going to be ready, and all of your customers are going to be ready. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm always staggered at how much because I, it, you planning is a double-edged sword. You know, you want to know so much because you don't want to get caught out, but then you don't want to get stuck in planning mode. You know, forever and ever. And I get I get inquiries from people from sometimes and you know, some people plan, you know, a good 18 months ahead of time, which is like, you know, such a long period. So, yeah, I mean, COVID, is, it's given us one thing. It's given us plenty of planning opportunities, that's for sure. But, yeah, so in, in the last, particularly in the last year, as I say, I was I was and I did some myself, some some online experiences. And I even returned to somewhere like Takayama for example, which I've been to in person a few times, but I just wanted to experience it again online. And also I wanted, because I've been there a couple of times, I wanted to compare that experience online with the real thing, because I was really thinking this is not going to be able to capture the atmosphere and the essence of being there. And I was amazed at how, how impacting it was actually. And it was really, it was like first person and it was alive tour so i met up with the guy he's you know again i'm thinking in my head i'm thinking it's like i met the guy there but we, we start at their shop and then we walk through all the streets and he looks back on camera and then he shows you his perspective and and it is really like you're walking the streets and having been there a couple of times myself in person you know i can say that it is as almost as good as being there you know so doing these kinds of things and somebody said to me when well, a really interesting thing i don't know if it was left as a comment on my guide to the virtual tours Somebody was saying this is a great way, actually, to kind of do a toe in the water. If you're not sure about a destination, do a short um, online virtual tour for like 30 minutes because they run for different lengths. So they don't cost a lot of money. And it can be a great way of ruling you know, a potential destination either in or out of your itinerary. And I thought that was a great idea, actually, a great way to use those tours. Yeah. And um, like hiring a guide when you're in the country, you can get that deeper perspective because you have mm. someone who knows the material so well and they're actually there. And if you're paying, you can ask them questions, which they can ask the staff right there. So it is, in some ways, it's better than than traveling with all the crowds or you know yeah. like you can have yeah, that absolutely. really high quality so experience i think they are they are and again going back a few years i was a bit snooty about package tours well package tours where you pay for everything you know you fly out the hotel and all that sort of stuff well i don't mean that so much but i mean just even the kind of the day tour the day trip type type things 
But, you know, when I started traveling in Japan, sort of I first came to Japan in 2000 and, you know, got in, and because I, and I, I have family there, I very much got into what it's like, you know, from a person living in Japan's perspective and also a person who's living in Japan who travels. So we were doing lots of these day trip things, which, you know, like coach tours to parts of the country. And I was thinking, it's not, it's never the sort of thing I would never do, never think to do in my own country, but I did it in Japan because it was like, well, hang on, it's just, it's all on a plate. It's really easy. I just jump on a bus in the next, next town and I can do that. And so we did that. And actually, exactly that experience, as you say, Joy, once you get an expert who, who shows you, and again, they share their passion for an area or a region or a small town, it's something that gets you drawn in. And there's such an efficient use of your time. They're so good for that. So now I'm a real convert and I've done the online tours and I frequently do uh, small trips when I'm in Japan, sometimes multi-day things as well. Um, they're just, they are just a great way. So it's, you know, it's about mixing and matching what suits your travel style and your preferences. But yeah, having been kind of, I wouldn't say anti them, but just, oh, they're not for me. Now I know that sometimes that is just the right thing to pick. Yeah. I, I like that part of researching a trip and it's so hard to just get the, the best recommendations just from a book. Um, but if you do an online tour uh, to talk with a local, if you read the materials and you ask your friends about their experiences, you know, you can get from a variety of sources and then social media following people who are there and, and sharing their real experience is another layer that I don't think we had five, 10 years ago, right? So oh, the right. new and travel experience is really different. Yeah, and it was something that somebody said to me uh, just recently about my website, and I hadn't really kind of consciously thought of this, but it's probably because, it, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's grown organically. So it started as a kind of, you know, here's some of my travels in Japan, but then I became very conscious once I wanted to do it as a business that I just was constantly thinking about this user experience so it's got to be practically useful so i was very conscious of you know providing some basic guides as well um city guides you know guides to using public transport so it kind of it's it's part personal blog and part you know travel resource for japan so it's not you know i'm not attempting to compete with you know the jntos of this world you know that kind of thing but I do think it's really good when you find some, because I know this is what I'm like when I find a site or a blogger that I get really into and start to follow and follow all on them or their different channels or their podcasts and that kind of thing. You find a voice that resonates with you. So you don't really want to go somewhere else if you think, well, if only they could just cover that bit as well, then I could just stick with this, these two or three sites that I really love for all of my needs. So that's, so the site has expanded over time again, and that's, that's totally driven by, the feedback that I was getting from people and I I got a subscriber list so people can subscribe and get loads of access to free loads of extra free resources um, a regular Japan travel bulletin and so on um, but the idea is to you know for people to have it as um, something they can rely upon and dip into and out of as much as they need to use it and you know it can be fully structured or you can just pick and mix as they wish that's that's the kind of because that's how I like to work but it's nice to have you know, somebody you can rely upon that, you know, is in your kind of headspace, as it were, um, yeah. that resonates your style of travel. Yeah, it's um, it's always surprising when I talk to domestic uh, travel industry people and tell them the way a lot of inbound people travel, they change plans along the way, depending yeah. on the weather, depending on finding out about new information, depending on recommendations from other travelers, right? So the style is a lot more flexible. And so we need to have a variety of input of resources as well to cater to that flexibility, right? Yeah, and as more kind of content um, um, access has gone mobile, that's made a big shift. You know, so people are you know, searching, you know, what can I, what can I do in Kobe tonight, for example, and things like this. So I am consciously trying to build in more kind of, because I never really did it. My, my blog posts were kind of storytelling, kind of narrative type stuff originally. But now, more now more people want just, you know, checklists or bullet points, uh, you know, top tens, that kind of thing, which I wasn't really doing. And um, but now I realize actually a lot of people get a lot of utility out out of that kind of approach. So I am doing more of those sorts of things. And I've noticed that people are, um, 
you know, they're using the site. So these are people that are obviously live in other countries. They they use the Real Japan to plan their trip. And then when they're out there, they they are even in contact whilst they're traveling. So, um, for example, I've got a, a private Facebook group. So anyone who subscribes can join my private Facebook group. And people pop in there when they're traveling, when they're in Japan and say, oh, I'm going to be in, like in Hiroshima tomorrow. Has anyone got any, you know, we've got some bits that we just haven't really planned out the detail. Um, and then they pop into the group. So being timely now with the content is something I'm quite conscious of as well. And of all the social channels that I'm on, uh, Twitter's my kind of favorite. That's my go-to because it's very kind of, I like the conversational style of it. So people can always sort of check me out on Twitter and I'm always on there and happy to answer questions. So yeah, that's kind of, I like, I like to engage that way as well. That's great. Uh, the million dollar question from Gaijin Cool on YouTube here. Uh, what is your best estimate for when travel will be possible again? Yeah, this Any is interesting. It's, it's, yeah, and and it's thanks for acknowledging that I, we, none of us have a crystal ball. So, uh, but yeah, but one thing that one announcement that kind of really slipped below the radar was about, so when was it? It was about November time, end of October time last year, Prime Minister said that if this was before the Omicron variant of COVID-19 had become commonplace and certainly wasn't known in Japan at the time, the announcement then was that they were going to start to do a gradual easing with the idea of it starting in December. And a lot of the press just kind of didn't pick up on this at the time. I think they were just, I don't know why this wasn't picked up. I, I reported it to my to my subscribers and so on, and had a little news item on the website. Um, but that would have been, had Omicron not happened, that would have been the starting of this gradual easing. And, and the gradual easing from the Japanese government's perspective means you know, business travellers first um, and students who are studying in Japan and so on, and then to gradually open that and then, and then increase the number of um, entries per month. And so we're now, now that Omicron has kind of calmed down a little bit and everyone's kind of seeing how we can hopefully live and manage with that, um, it, it looks like they're now reverting back to that original concept. And so starting next month, you know, that easing is starting to happen. There was a ban, or well, there was a limit, rather, a threshold of a maximum of 3,000 foreigners entering the country per month. And that's now been lifted to 5,000. Um, and so from March... Um, it's going to start to ease a little bit. So again, with the business travel and with the students. So for, you know, just individual tourism. And the other thing that I heard as well, I don't know if this is going to still happen, but when it comes to tourism, they were going to be looking at um, kind of uh, organised tours as a priority because they can be more managed rather than you know, crazy independent people, travellers running around the country doing what they like. Um, so that was a, my understanding was that was a, a way they were, they were going to ease in the tourism for in, international tourism. So that that could be what they would be on their plans. But yeah, I would I would hope that by by the summer uh, it's going to be realistically possible. Um, I mean that's just my personal take on it, and you know other people yeah. will have other views. But um, I, I don't know. I what think, you, yeah, my guess would be autumn. To be honest, yeah, yeah. we're just we're yeah. just hearing about uh, the boosters now. Uh, the students might be allowed back in now uh, who have places at universities. They should definitely get priority. They've been yeah. waiting for so long. Families yeah. who are stuck abroad yeah. who can't get back. Um, and then once the people who should be here with visas and jobs and studies, then let's open to tourism. That makes sense to me. So I'm thinking autumn mm. this year. We'll yeah, I think that's a good steer. I'm, I'm, I'm ever the optimist, so I will always kind of, and it's, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. But um, yeah, it might be possible for me to do some business travel before the, the general tourism opens up. But yeah, that's, that's, I'd go with Joy's advice over mine on that one. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody has Nobody a crystal knows, ball. Indeed. Fingers we'll, crossed. We'll, we'll, we'll be coming out sooner than you might think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the articles that I, I really liked on, on your website is about uh, the Tohoku area. So mm. a lot of people um, visit Japan, of course, very popular destination. But Tohoku is one of the areas that is very accessible by public transport, good train system. 
but not a lot of people go there. Now you have some mm. great recommendations for the Tohoku area. Have you spent some time up there? I have. And interestingly, this goes back to, oh, I can't remember when it was, but when I bought my first rough guide to Japan, travel guide book, and I remember reading that and, you know, these, these, these guidebooks, if you know them, they're like a thousand pages. There's a lot of detail. And I remember just reading through it, browsing through it. And there was a section in there about Tohoku. And Tohoku, if, if people don't know, on the main island of Honshu, it sort of curves up towards Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island. Um, and Tohoku is the northern part of the main island of Honshu. So just below the northern island of Hokkaido. Um, and I remember reading in this rough guide that it said, the Tohoku area, and it was something along this lines in the language they used and um, said that, you know, even the locals, even the Japanese, um, you know, view the Tohoku area traditionally as a kind of a backwater. And so, and then they used that phrase and I thought, ah, that sounds exactly like the sort of place I'd love. So literally after reading that phrase about, you know, almost disparagingly, like the Japanese, even the Japanese tend not to go there very much. So I thought, right, I've got, I need to check this place out. So, so yeah, so we just started traveling there. And um, I've recently published a guide that you just showed earlier. It's a, a guide to the Tawada um, Hachimantai National Park, which is right in the heart of the, that region. Um, and yeah, there's just, there's so much, I mean, Japan is great for nature because obviously, you know, 70% of it is forested mountains and so on. Um, but this this area in particular is really unspoiled and there's lots of you know, natural hot springs, the Nuto Onsen, which is a very famous onsen, is in that region too. Um, you know, the, the opportunities for seeing sakura, you know, the cherry blossoms in spring and the autumn uh, koyo, the, 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 the um, autumn colors in, in, in fall and so on. You know, the opportunities in that region are just wonderful. And if you like to go off the beaten track, and, and here in that in this area, you can really go off the beaten track and get isolated if that's what you want. But as you say, Joy, I mean, you know, from 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 um, from Tokyo by Shinkansen to that area, it's just a couple of hours by train. Then you can sort of travel more internally. Um, but and they're, and they're great around the seasons. Obviously, that region of Japan is known for its snow and skiing, and there's great powder snow in that that region too. Aren't in the snow monsters incredible i've seen yeah yeah the trees when they get covered in the snow and freezing yeah, yeah it's um yeah they're amazing and so th this is a natural phenomenon of how yeah. the snow kind of freezes to the trees and makes these really amazing shapes i would love to yeah see i mean it's a, it's a it's a you know it's a it's an explorer's and a photographer's sort of um nirvana isn't it is that kind of yeah. landscape this is what i love about these kind of areas for me i I don't know a great deal about the major cities, to be honest. You know, I've been to Tokyo, obviously, quite a few times down the years. But when I first came to Japan um, in 2000, we flew into Tokyo and spent a couple of days there with friends before traveling down to the Kansai area. Um, and then apart from flying in to Tokyo when I was traveling to, to Japan, I literally didn't go back to Tokyo for 10 years. So it was 10 years before I returned and stopped and thought, oh, yeah, maybe I should have a look around this capital city. So honestly, in terms of my knowledge, I know very, very little about Tokyo. So um, if anyone's got some tips on going off the, you know, the hidden hidden backwaters, the side little villages and alleys in, in Tokyo, then then drop me a line. But um, but yeah, so that, so this is exactly the sort of thing that I do. And But this is our this is the way we travel when we travel anywhere in the world. My wife and I, we just we just kind of quieter places and nature and supporting local tourism and sorry local businesses without tourism that kind of thing you know and that that as you were sort of touching on and obviously your show focuses on joy the whole sustainable sustainable approach of tourism as well is quite key here because you know nobody needs to really tell much about sort of um tokyo or kyoto because it's everywhere and even before the pandemic of course you know kyoto was suffering from over tourism so they've become the victim of their own success and the thing is, you can have, honestly, you can have everything that Kyoto has to offer in lots of other places in Japan. Maybe not all in one city, but certainly all the different experiences, even the wealth and richness of all those fantastic shrines and temples. You know, you can go to Nara and get a lot of the same things. So, you know, it is about getting off the beaten track and not, you know, 
being Mr. Wild Adventurer, you don't have to do that. And that's what's fantastic about using public transport in Japan. It's got such a well-developed train network that you can get to these outer limbs and reaches of, of Japan and even onto some of the other islands now because they've got bridges and tunnels connecting them, which weren't there even like 20 years ago when I was first traveling. And so you can get to these places really easily. Um, and yeah, it just, it's, just, it's just a better way to travel. And Tohoku, that northern part of Honshu, was always an area that um, drew me in because it was seen as a place that you shouldn't go. So I thought, oh, well, I must go there then. Yeah. I, we've had Tim Button on the on the show, and he is the Kiwi Yamabushi, and he takes people up into the the pilgrimages in the mountains, and he's got a great channel and so much great resources. And uh, we had another person uh, from a travel company talking about what they're trying to do up there. But I would love to have more people talking about Tohoku because it really is kind of an untapped beautiful natural area so i'm it so is. happy to and, see that yeah and it's kind of got a real opportunity now whilst things are kind of still in lockdown and there's no international travel to really kind of reposition itself and actually I'm, i am working because the response to that article on the tawada hachimantai national park which was published in january at the start of the year um was really strong and i I'm very active in a lot of um, Japan travel Facebook groups, which if people don't use them, you know, they're another fantastic resource. And so I was sharing the blog post in a number of those groups and was just inundated with comments and questions. And you're right, Louis, it's because a lot of people see these, they see the photos, the magnificent landscapes that naturally exist there, but people just don't know about. And so then when they find that it's two hours by train on Shinkansen from Tokyo, it's not even difficult to get to, you know, to, to, to get to the main areas. Um, so I'm actually going to be doing a follow-up post, which kind of delves into... Um, the Hachimantai area of um, uh, Tohoku, because there's, there's there's and it was touched on in that previous article actually. But there's a there's a wealth of things there, and again, you know, all these kind of, you know, I didn't, I didn't even even myself had been travelled up there a few times. I didn't even realise that there was, you know, a quite a, a strong tradition of thermal um, energy there. I mean, obviously there's onsen, but people tend to associate the kind of thermal power and thermal energy with the Kyushu region, you know, down that sort of southern islands. But in, in the Tohoku area, this has been used, you know, for energy generation and so on. So this is something which is not well known. And then there's, there's very small specialist stores that do kind of uh, tie-dyeing using the natural hot spring steam to fix the colors in the in the um, materials and you can go there and do this yourself as you know and create your own and it will be a unique uniquely colored experience um sorry um souvenir that you can take away with you so yeah i'm going to be doing um another post about that and be publishing that sooner hopefully that's awesome i just have to mention this is my favorite picture and i have to get here someday the dragon's eye pond in Mount Hachimantai. Yeah, yeah. It is absolutely incredible to look at. It is, I can't wait to visit. Yeah, it was only when I was doing some research on this that I, I found this place. And um, it, 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 it naturally forms. So it's when the snow, because they have snow here well into the kind of like what we would consider the summer, like into June, I think. And so it, it's when it starts to melt and it, it, what happens is water displacement, when the ice starts to melt, it kind of creates concentric circles, which looks like, and it's this kind of aquamarine and dark, dark blue colours. And it looks like um, when you're looking at it from above, someone, I think it was just literally a foreign tourist that was there once and said it looks like a dragon's eye. And it's so that's incredible. So yeah. Local tourism board, I think, adopted that and it's become a real go to spot. That's not the only one as well. It's part of an area where there's several of these, but that's the most striking one. They're, they're quite large and it's just a natural phenomenon that but it only happens for about a month every year so you need to time your time your visit right but you can read all about it on the website so <laughs> that's great uh what one of the things that people might be worried about when they travel around japan to the rural or off the beaten track areas is what if i can't communicate and you mm. actually this is one of your more popular posts right can you talk that's about right. yeah how to travel in japan without speaking japanese tell us a a little bit of your insights here yeah and and, and i can speak shamedly uh, from personal experience here because 
despite being married to a Japanese and um, going to Japan for many years, I still can't speak the language. I just have a bit of a, a brain fog when it comes to learning languages. I'm not great at it. I'm good at accents, so I'm good at kind of passing off that I can I can speak the languages. Um, but yeah, so so I don't speak. I can I can I've got survival what I call survival Japanese, so I can get by and travel on my own and you know do all the things you need to do day to day. Um, but I know from the feedback that I got from the website was that this is definitely still the number one issue uh, for people, particularly obviously people who are coming to Japan for the first time. They get quite anxious about this. And there was one person that was a subscriber and was also posting in our private Facebook group um, a couple of years ago. And she was saying that she she wasn't planning to go for 18 months because she wanted to study the language and she wanted, I mean, and that's, that's obviously sometimes there's a bit of a, you know, a personal aspiration type thing, but you know, some people really, you know, get quite anxious about being able to travel in Japan and thinking that it's just not possible or very, very difficult. I mean, if you Google, you know, how hard is it to travel in Japan when you don't speak the language, you know, there's like 9 million results or something. I mean, it's a huge, huge issue. So I, I first wrote a blog post about this. And again, this was drawing very much from my own personal experiences of traveling in Japan when I first came. You know, I had an interest in Japan. I'd read a lot about Japanese history and culture. I had my little Berlitz phrase books back in the day and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, whenever I travel, I always have a phrase book with me because I'm a bit old school. Um, don't use apps much. Um, but so I was always kind of trying. So it wasn't about don't bother, you know, don't be a bad traveler. Don't, you know, sort of think you don't make, need to make an effort. Absolutely, you do. But what I was really saying was, you know, don't worry too much. You know, it's perhaps not going to be as difficult as you think. And in the 20 years that I've been, 20 plus years that I've been traveling in Japan, even I've seen some major, major developments in terms of accessibility for language barrier, you know, reducing that language barrier um, in just that period of time. So it's a lot easier now than it used to be. Um, but so I wrote a blog post about this and, it, you know, it very quickly became my number one blog post and had, you know, dozens of comments from people and, you know, really good things like people sharing their own experiences and, oh, I found this really good app and this kind of thing. So, yeah, that kind of evolved. And then I then published a small guidebook, uh, which is the one you've got there, um, um, right, you know, from, from shortly after doing the blog post because I could see that it was a popular issue. Um, and yeah, with just some practical tips. So, and when you're in the cities, yeah, it's going to be a lot easier. And obviously the major cities like um, Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka that are used to foreign tourists, uh, you know, cater for them well. And they even have like a, a foreign taxi service, as they call it in Kyoto, that you can, if you're a foreigner and you don't speak the language, you can use taxis that are designed specifically for foreigners. So the drivers will speak English, because a lot of taxi drivers in Japan won't speak English. Um, and it's good to have the destination written down in kanji for them. So you don't know, you know, if you don't have the language as, a, as, as yourself, write something down on, you know, if you're going to be using a taxi, you're going somewhere. That's a good tip. Um, but yeah, so in the major cities, it's a lot easier than it used to be. Um, certainly using public transport is, it's really not, if you don't mind doing a little bit of pre-planning, and you don't mind getting a little bit, oh, I might go left here, or I might get out the wrong exit sometimes, you know, that's going to happen. I still do that. I know a lot of people do the stations in Japan, the train stations are huge. So that's going to happen. Um, but when you get off the beaten track, it is a bit more challenging. And it's really just, I, what I what I try to do with the website and the guide there is, is just to kind of reassure people and give them some practical pointers on things they can look out for. And, and a lot of it even comes down to how they express themselves. So, you know, the cultural differences, um, you know, using body language, um, you know, keeping the tone of your voice low, moderating so you don't start being loud and too expressive and that kind of thing. These kind of things just help you blend in more. Because for me, when I'm traveling, whatever country it is, I want to... I want to travel like a local. That's just, that's the, to me, that's the whole point of travel. It's to experience other cultures and all the diversity of those cultures. And that's what makes it interesting. So for me, I want to blend in as much as possible. And obviously, if you speak the language, you're going to have a major advantage. That's going to get you under the skin even more. You're going to get more cultural insights and so on. But not having the language or only having some basic Japanese is, is going to get you a long way. And a lot of it is about, you know, just knowing some basics, having some resources to hand, doing a bit of homework before you go, and then just, you know, read up on it and build up a bit of self-confidence. And 
the Japanese are so, so helpful. I was in, um, actually, it was in your region some years ago, Joy, in, in the Chugoku area. It was in, um, I think it was Hagi um, on the coast there. Um, small village, really, small town. And we were staying in a hostel overnight. And um, I was traveling, and I, because we were traveling quite a bit at this time, actually, there's a blog post about this. It's an itinerary for Chugoku, 16 days we were traveling. And, um, because we were moving from place to place, I left my toothbrush somewhere. <laughs> so we got to this um, <laughs> tiny town and it was late at night and we were staying in a hostel and I was talking to the guy and I thought, oh, I haven't got a toothbrush. And they didn't have any, because it was a hostel, you know, some hotels, you just collect one at the counter or can buy one. Uh, there wasn't any there. So I'm, you know, again, with a bit of help from my wife, because the guy didn't speak much English, but um, we did, I sort of said, you know, toothbrush. And he said, oh, yeah, let me let me show you. I'll, I'll, I'll get you one or we can get you one. So I thought he's going to you know, go to a cupboard around the back. And so he said, put your shoes on. So he put my shoes on and we went out the front of the, the hostel. We walked up the road, turned left, went across some traffic lights. Literally, we walked about three blocks and he took me to a pharmacy and he waited while I went inside to bought a toothbrush and then he walked me all the way back so that I didn't get lost. I mean, that kind of thing, that 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 happens quite often in Japan. So you can really, you know, you'll get a lot of help from locals who are more than willing to try and help you out. And if they see you're struggling, particularly if it's a language issue, you know, they're more often than not go out of their way to help you. So, oh, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the um, the story of it. Um, I think I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I mention it in there. I might do actually, but yeah. So that was that was a really was, you know, and I get and again in my Facebook group and in emails that I get from from clients and and subscribers, I get this story, these kinds of stories constantly. Um, and and you also get other people that because they can see you're a foreigner. This happens more in the city centres, to be fair. But if you're in one of the major cities, you'll often get. And they, they can be younger people or they can actually be older people, some some sort of older people or maybe even retirees um, who just come up to you, see that you're foreign and, and want to speak to you. They're, they're, they're nine times out of 10, they're going to say, are you American? Because they just think everyone who's who's there from overseas is, a, is an American. Well, I think even even if you speak Japanese or read Japanese, it's still confusing sometimes being in the stations <laughs> or not sure where to go. And you're right. You know, people are willing to help if you just ask or even if you look confused, somebody was, is likely to come up and try to help you. Uh, it's a very, yeah. it's a very friendly place to travel. Uh, most people stay back. Uh, we we in Hiroshima, we sometimes have people who've been traveling in Japan for two weeks, and they often say, "We're a bit lonely. We we need to talk to somebody." Um, but mm. if you make an effort and start a conversation, or smile, or look at your map, um, it's not too hard to engage with local people, right? Yeah, and there's this kind of you know, there's this kind of social, I wouldn't say it's a stereotype because it's true, but there's this kind of bit of social <laughs> social distance, that phrase. But in Japan, Japanese culture, there's that kind of natural thing. You know, everyone kind of keeps themselves on public transport and all that sort of thing, which is, you know, it all works really well. But if you do it the right way, because I was always traveling, you know, I was frequently you know, coming to the country quite often. But, you know, my wife and I split up. She'll spend a few days with her friends, you know, doing some shopping or staying in an onsen or something like that. And then I'll go off for a few days and do my own thing. And again, sort of conscious that I didn't speak much Japanese. But if if you it's exactly what you say, Joy, if you just smile at people and and if you if you if you just approach people quietly in a moderate way with a, a low tone of voice and so on, and just say, "Excuse me, uh, you know, can you help me?" This kind of thing, um, you'll be surprised at how people. You know, they may not be used to that from their own nationals, but when they see it done in a polite and respectful manner, and they can see that actually you need a bit of help, then that natural Japanese sort of you know, that kind of customer service experience kind of culture um, kicks into all, well, certainly in my experience, to most people. There's there's one or two people that will just kind of scream and run away, you know, because they think, oh, my God, I don't speak to foreigners. But, you know, that's fine. But, yeah, it, it, wherever you go, <clears throat> and this is where it does really come into its own when you're off the beaten track. Yeah, um, again, a lot of these people are just so pleased that you've made the effort to go to their out-of-the-way place. And that's, you know, I've stayed in so many small inns and cabins and places in the mountain and onsen and all these different places and they're always the ones that give me the most vivid memories um i forget where it was but one time my wife and i were in um, staying in an onsen in the winter so the classic one where you're sitting outside it's nice and hot and the snow is falling on top you know really magical experience 
And we were outside afterwards and there was a kind of an open fire and a number of the guests were staying in this small ryokan, uh, this traditional inn. And uh, we were sat around and these two, this older couple came and they looked really kind of like a cool older couple. They were like look, retirees sort of thing. And we got chatting to them and they spoke a bit of, spoke, spoke a bit of English. They were really into their motorcycles. So this elderly couple, they had the Harley Davidsons and they retired early in this sort of, I think when they were about 65 and they spent all their time just driving around Japan on their Harleys and they've even taken them overseas. So they've driven in America. Um, but it was just like, you know, experiences like memories like that are just magical. And they was, this was like right in the middle of nowhere, halfway up a mountain in the winter. And, you know, I can't even remember where it was, but just the characters that you meet like that. It's just so terrific. And that all gets lost in the cities. You know, it's just there's so much noise and people and bustle that those kind of little moments kind of get lost. So that's that's another advantage of going off the track. Off yeah, the track. definitely. And your your website and a lot of your information uh, tells people how to do it. And to, I love your visit Kansai, but don't don't go to Osaka or, you know, like some of your articles are how to avoid the crowds, which is so important information. Now, you had a really deep experience for Japanese culture, a learning about samurai oh, swords. Yeah. Tell me about that. That looked really cool. Yeah, this is this was this was in Kyoto actually a few years ago, um, and the, what they do is it's it's kind of an old it's an old it's an old build, building traditional like a machia type townhouse that was uh, used to be an armory factory. They used to make well not factory but the handcrafted armory that they used to make for samurai warriors many years ago, and uh, it's it owned by a, a Japanese woman and an English guy actually. And he was interested in martial arts and so on. And then they teamed up with this guy here um, who comes from a family of samurai warriors um, who have a history going back over 400 years. And so they decided in this natural setting of where they used to make the armory for samurai warriors to do a Japanese a samurai sword experience. And you can go there and book these. Um, and when you arrive... You arrive on the ground floor and you can still see they still make the armor. They still sell the armor. And a lot of this is bought by those uh, recreation societies and museums, that kind of thing. Um, but then you go upstairs and this photo here is in the upstairs level. And you can see that they've got a display of the different sort of um, weapons and uh, swords and so on. And the swords that I'm handling, the sword that I've got here was over 400 years old. So first of all, I was panicking, thinking, right, okay, well, don't drop this because this is like, you know, a cultural treasure, um, 400 years old. And also it was absolutely razor sharp. I mean, like seriously sharp. And he, I've got a short video on my YouTube channel um, um, where he was demonstrating how sharp, the how sharp the sword blade was by just going like this on a piece of paper. And it was just slicing the paper so finely. It was incredible. And so then he basically gives you instruction. And so he shows you how to take it out of the sheath and then put it back in. And putting it back in, oh, my God, that is so scary because, you know, you're millimeters from your fingers. But And he wasn't compromising. He was saying, no, no, you've got to learn how to do this. And I was thinking, well, can I not just like push, can I put my hand further down the sheath? He said, no, 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 you've got to be at the top. You've got to be at the top to give it, you know, stability for when you're putting the blade in. And you're literally millimeters. So this is all very nervous. But anyway, you get trained and it's really good training. And they show you how to do cutting. And to cut with a samurai sword, you need to do it at a 30 degree angle. So once you've got the training, you then go So that picture at the top there you've got is in the courtyard at the back of the property where they put rolled up tatami mats on a wooden stand. And then you can chop them using the samurai sword and the technique that you're given. And again, on my YouTube channel, I think on the blog post, actually, the videos are embedded um, where he shows you the angle and he also shows you what happens when you don't do the angle. And it just doesn't work. It's it's amazing. It's like. You do one way, it's the, you know, that hot knife through butter kind of sort of cliche. And the other ones, it just kind of knocks it, barely, barely cuts into it. So when you get the angle right, and I did this and then and it goes straight through and it's like incredible. And you, you instantly think, you know what this could do to a human body, you know, and what it did for real back in the day. So it's a, 
a fantastic experience. And actually, I think on that blog post, I've got a collection of, you know, a variety of um, samurai sword experiences that you can do in Kyoto. Yeah. And you've also got uh, posts and videos about uh, Japanese knives. So kitchen yeah. knives as well. That This tradition and culture and craftsmanship, which is still ongoing um, in Japan, is so fascinating and worth learning about, but also great souvenir if you can buy one that you're allowed to take home, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, there's some information in the There's a post about this. And the post... The post was written by a French guy called Eric Chevalier, and he's the only Westerner to have done the full five-year um, uh, blacksmith training that the, the Japanese do themselves to be considered a master, a master blade craftsman. And so he's, I think at the moment, he's still the only foreigner that's done that extensive level of training. And so uh, this talks about, and you'll see on the name of the blade there and the company Sakai, which is a kind of a small part of uh, Osaka, near Osaka Bay. So it's, and, and this is an area which for, for historical year, for, you know, for historical over 600 years, as it says in the post, has um, been one of the best places in Japan for crafting these handmade knives. And they still make them today using the traditional techniques. And there's a museum there where you can go and see all the blades and they show you around. And I've got a little video in there when you walk around the museum um, and you can take these away as souvenirs. But this is um, this. So I asked Eric, I met Eric when I was there, actually. And I it was when I came back and a couple of years later, I thought, oh, I should contact him and ask him if he'd be interested in writing about his experiences becoming this this blacksmith, the master craftsman and then a guide to the different types of knives, because I know. You know, a lot of people look to Japanese knives when they um, you know, want to buy them and use them at home. But uh, yes, yeah, so this is a terrific piece from someone who's, you know, unique in their field and has so much knowledge and expertise. And he also, when you visit the museum, he does talks and tours and that kind of thing. So, yeah, fascinating piece. Really interesting guy. Yeah, really interesting. I had um, Paul Martin who is trained in Japanese samurai swords. And he was in the series when I first started. I need to have him back on um, because mm. this is a, a part of Japanese culture we don't often know about or see in action. And then if you can connect it to cooking culture and the importance yeah. of high quality knives and then tools, a lot of the carpenters or remodel old mm. houses use the traditional Japanese tools. <laughs> Um, such an interesting part of the culture. I love it. Yeah, and that, just as you say that, there's a, qu a quick sort of random tip that just occurs to me. If you're going to Kobe, there's a there's a, um, a traditional um, Japanese uh, wooden tools museum, which sounds really boring, and it's an amazing place. It's absolutely it's, it's a real it's a definition of a hidden gem. It's fantastic. So it's a carpentry museum there. It's fantastic. And they've got whole joints that you see in the temples and shrines, that, uh, you know, and you can see these right up close and how they all dovetail. And the craftsmanship is incredible there. So that's um, that's a little place. If you're into that kind of you know, craftsmanship, that's a really good little find that museum. Yeah, that sounds great. There's uh, so many great hidden gems all over Japan. So we need people like you who keep collecting these stories and sharing them with us. So important. Thanks for everything you're doing, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to do it. And wonderful to talk with you. Uh, that's almost the end of our time. Uh, can you give people an idea of how they can find your information, sure. please? Yeah, so the real it's the website is therealjapan.com and you can subscribe on there. If you go on there, you can subscribe and you'll get a uh, one of my regular um, Japan travel bulletins by email, newsletter, and access to a resource library, which has got a lot of extra free resources for planning trips and so on, and access to my private Facebook group as well. Um, so, yeah, um, and I've got a YouTube channel, so just look for The Real Japan on YouTube and you'll find me there. And I'm on all the social main social media channels as well under the Real Japan. And Pinterest. Check out your Pinterest. Amazing. Uh, Instagram page, of course, lots of beautiful photos there. Um, but your blog as well, your website blog has so many gorgeous photos. I, I think this comes from your talent to collaborate with so many great writers and creators as well. 
Thank you. Yeah, and it's it's. I'm always happy to partner up with other people, and um, you know, where they've got the expertise and knowledge that I don't have, I just turn to those that have got got you know got the more experience and 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 know more about it than me, and just share that with my audience. Happy to do that. Yeah, wonderful. Well, hopefully, we can meet up for a coffee sometime when you're back in Japan. I hope so. Yeah, I'll be happy to come and visit you, Joy, as soon as possible. <laughs> Fantastic. Until then, keep planning, uh, keep sharing information like you're doing so well. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks for having me, Joy. Um, great to be here. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Have a great night. Take care. Bye. Drop the armor, now I'm bold.